Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, my name is Oz Ismail and I am a PhD researcher based at University College London. And today I'm hosting this podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. This week I have a fantastic panel in the studio to talk on the topic of student health and well-being. I'm joined by Geraldine Garabet, a student support and welfare officer from the University of Manchester. Dr. Caroline Salai, a senior lecturer from the UCL Institute of Neurology. And Dr. Kelly Morrissey, a research fellow working at the Open Lab in Newcastle University. So research, the discovery of new knowledge, has been described as an endless frontier. There will certainly be instances during a PhD and beyond when this curiosity-driven activity can seem vast and relentless. So it's really critical that researchers at whatever stage in their career develop the capacity and the capability to generate an appropriate perspective on what they're facing. Put simply and starkly, doing research depends on being well. To start this conversation, perhaps uh, we could just go around and if you could introduce yourselves and tell me a little bit about your research or your work and your involvement in providing support in research to early career people. Let's start with you, Kelly. Um, so, as you said, Oz, I am a research fellow uh, in Open Lab, which is a HCI group in the School of Computing Science in Newcastle University. My own background is as a psychologist and my PhD was in ethnography of dementia care uh, that was carried out in Ireland a few years ago. Uh, and right now, I suppose I, I head up the digital social care group in Newcastle University, but I also have several students who work day to day with people with dementia and their carers. Uh, primarily, they come from interdisciplinary areas, often computer science, uh, and I've seen them face some some struggles and some issues. So I think uh, I think there's the, the there's my kind of inner interest in, in in exploring how these students cultivate a new sensitivity to working in this area. Hello, my name is uh, Dr Caroline Sade from UCL Institute of Neurology and my own work um, as a senior lecturer and academic, I'm a psychologist and I've been looking uh, for a number of years at sort of psychological aspects of neurological disorders, a whole range um, from Alzheimer's through to movement disorders um, and epilepsy etc. And for a long time now I've had an interest, perhaps as a psychologist I was drawn to the student wellbeing roles at uh, UCL Institute of Neurology and and in broader, wider um, parts of UCL in general. And I've had a number of uh, sort of roles there as a departmental tutor. I'm currently a co-director of three different MSc programmes. And I'm also currently co-director of UCL Cultural Consultation Service. I'm Geraldine Garibay. I'm the Student Support and Welfare Officer at the School of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Manchester. Um, I look after students, I usually say to people, I look after students with problems. Um, when they have uh, an issue, they come and see me. I'm the first port of call, usually, for students, whether they're undergrads or postgrads. We cover the whole thing. Um, and I provide advice, guidance, and uh, support for the students uh, within the school. And I'm also their disability coordinator. So all the students with a disability come to me and I put in place a support plan for them with the help of the disability office. Um, 
I offer a lot of pastoral support, um, and usually it's non-academic guidance that I offer. You know, they've got to go to their personal tutors for academic guidance. Um, I also sit on a few committees and boards, um, mitigating circumstances committee, uh, exam boards, equality and diversity, etc. Great. So we've definitely got a very experienced panel in the house tonight, today. So let's. Um, this, this, since this is such a vast subject, right? Um, well-being and uh, student welfare. Mm -hmm. It could be. It could come from so many different places. There are academic issues. There's people's personal issues. Sometimes there's culture and religion. Um, it, we could break it down to so many different areas. So to start with, uh, could you perhaps talk a little bit about what are the most common issues that people come to you with when they are starting to struggle? Yeah, so uh, I suppose I'm talking primarily in a kind of a, a dementia research role here, but I can tell you there's definitely some commonalities across the issues that students come to me with. And they typically are about uh, ethics, I suppose, and kind of everyday ethics. So they're faced with field research, working with people who are living with uh, challenging circumstances and serious vulnerabilities. Uh, they haven't necessarily come up through a kind of a a, a sort of a uh, maybe a, a more social science or psychology background. So very often it's about cultivating kind of an everyday ethics. So I have students who are working in in care homes and care centres and they're learning coming from really technical subdomains of computer science. They're learning completely new ways of working with people who have uh, these conditions. And in, in, in very many instances, as we all know, I suppose almost all of us have been touched by issues of dementia and, and, you know, in our daily lives and these students aren't, um, you know, exempt from that. And very often they're dealing with uh, their research, bringing up kind of familial circumstances and familial histories uh, that maybe other more kind of uh, a different research route wouldn't have taken. So I think the subject of many students research uh, topics day to day now are quite uh, are quite difficult and complex. Yeah, so I suppose uh, I could talk for hours about this topic, really. But I'm, well, one, one way that might be of interest to uh, listeners is to think um, in terms of the sort of life cycle of a student, in a way. Mm -hmm. So uh, typically they would come uh, for a one-year MSc programme, postgraduate students at the Institute of Neurology, or thinking about um, students on a typical three-year PhD, for example. So it's very interesting to track their experience over time. And I suppose the perhaps interesting crunch point, as you might expect, is when you initially arrive mm -hmm. um, at the university, you arrive at UCL, this very elite Russell Group University, um, from, it could be from another country, another part of the world, another part of the world where there's the sea and gentle landscapes and you arrive in the middle of a huge city, um, for example. Yeah, yeah, China yeah. Manchester. <laughs> and our students from Nigeria, I've got lots of um, funny anecdotes about that. You know, we had a tube strike once and the, a chap said that he came out, everyone came out of the tube looking to, on a map, thinking, oh my goodness, there's no buses or tubes. I'll try and look on a map. But this student from Nigeria said that back home, I would always look up to the sun to try and navigate. And guess what? In the UK, you can never see the sun. But anyway, so there's lots and lots of stories. But I think um, just to bear in mind, all of our students, where they come from Manchester or, or wherever, or even another part of London as undergrads, that initial cr 
crunch, that sort of panic, that settling in. And obviously, as you can imagine, international students mm -hmm. have got that plus plus. Mm -hmm. And there's just tons of things. It's about being away from home. It's about how do you share a flat or rooms with somebody. It's um, a, a whole lot of things. Um, for me, obviously, it's going to be more specific when the students come to see me um, mainly with mental health issues. Um, I do um, feel that there's a massive difference. When I started the job about nine years ago, the um, main disability that students were registered with was um, were learning difficulties, so dyslexia, dyspraxia. And now it's, I mean, by far mental health issues like depression, anxiety, bipolar are way, way, you know, they're at the top now of the list. Um, so when they come to see me, it's a lot of um, problems to do with anxiety, insomnia, depression, and um, everything that, that might bring. Um, you were talking about new students. They come from um, mm -hmm. a family, maybe, you know, that, have, yes. you know, mollycoddled them anyway. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then they come to a big city like Manchester or London mm -hmm. and they discover life you know they've mm. got to uh, fend for themselves but some of them just go into it you know head first and they discover mm. drinking drugs yes. going out you know and uh, so you've got to pick up the pieces mm -hmm. of all those things and uh, also more and more because um, they've got older parents um, they come to university and their parents start being sick so they've got to deal with the family problems that that entail, you know, as well. So they've got to look after their little brother, their dad, their mum, you know, mm -hmm. so, yeah. So it sounds like there's quite a wide range that you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis within your roles. Mm -hmm. I just want to pick up uh, on a few specifics mm -hmm. from off the back of what you've said. So, um, like you said, Caroline, mm -hmm. coming to a big university in a big city, mm -hmm. especially when you're entering... Uh, a postgraduate program yes. you you feel like you've worked to get there mm. and you know it's a huge responsibility on you mm. so this sense of I'm going to fail mm. yes. is always pushed to the back of your mind because you feel yeah. like you have to make it mm. and personally my experience of being a PhD student is that sense grows and grows and grows mm. as you go through the years mm. right and because the, the way academia is we are scared to admit that we're going to fail because mm. it's just the way it's structured, right? We, we, we want to succeed. We want to publish that paper. We mm. want to get those next results. Mm. So how, how do you, would you say that students uh, are, or early career researchers are becoming more open to admitting when they are struggling? Or do you think that that is still something that is not spoken about enough, this sense of I'm about to fail and the sense of crushing doom that we don't want to admit is mm. always there? Well, it's quite difficult to answer your question. I think it's a it's a mixture. Interestingly, there there are some students. So so one group, for example, are students who've done incredibly well as undergraduates, perhaps or in the sixth form, and they come to university and get their first bit of feedback. And guess what? Instead of getting eighty percent as they always do, suddenly the mark is sort of forty percent, mm -hmm. and that can be a bit of a blow um, to someone's self confidence. So that could be one sort of uh, reality check, if you like. Um, but 
there are other sort of groups. There are other groups, for example, our international students mm -hmm. is, is, is a big challenge. And we've all been thinking about them a lot because there there may be sort of stigma around seeking help. Mm -hmm. And even though we reach out and we've got hundreds of opportunities and signposting and labelling, to ask for help, whatever that is, is already a huge challenge for some students. And then if you add on, you know, possible sort of mental health difficulties when back home, there's a huge stigma still. I think we're quite sort of proud in the UK almost to say one in four of us has a mental health problem. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you, there's a lots of parts of the world where you would not want to own up to that. Right. And also, um, given like big cities like, for example, Manchester or London, where you do have students mm. coming from all over the world, where perhaps, you know, mental health especially is stigmatised. Sometimes even certain physical conditions are stigmatised. Mm. For example, uh, you know, I, I originally from Sri Lanka and parts of Sri Lanka, people don't even want to speak about dementia because they've they feel a certain shame about it. Mm. So it can be quite hard. Mm. And so specifically whilst in mm. the UK we might speak a lot about mental health, mm. it's an interesting point that we, mm. you know, it, it, that doesn't represent what mm. everybody's feeling and there's still a large number of mm. students and early care researchers probably don't want to admit mm. these kind of... Uh, Th these cultural barriers that they face because they just want to get on with it. Would you would you agree with that? Definitely, yeah. I mean, we're, we're trying to um, um, be more visible to mm -hmm. postgrad students at Manchester. Um, and we are in the School of Physics and Astronomy doing... Um, we've started a focus group with the PhD students to try and find how ways to help them. Um, because like you said, you know, they're very much keeping themselves to themselves, they're just keeping their head down, their heads down, you know, work, work, work. And um, they find it extremely difficult to reach out. So um, we are more visible at the student support team and we are giving them the opportunity to um, talk to us about what would help them, etc. So um, now we are um, organizing little coffee mornings where we can talk about, you know, how difficult it is for them, what's difficult, what can... And um, tutors, advisors, academics are coming along as well. So they can talk to us, the student support team, but also academics and, you know, make it a big space for them to uh, air their issues. So yeah. that's one of the things we do anyway. Um, so, Kelly, can I just ask you, in terms of um, the type of work that is involved in dementia research mm -hmm. specifically, for, for, so my project, I deal with tubes and slides and, you know, very la typical, stereotypical lab stuff, right? Um, I'm shamefully going to admit that I fit that, fit that image. <laughs> but there are, there are lots of people working in dementia research who have to face the reality of it, and it's very heavy when you're dealing with real people, patients, families. Do you think we talk enough about the impact that has on the researcher and what is the impact that has on the researcher? I don't think we do. Um, I think carrying out my own PhD, I felt just this deep gulf where everyday kind of issues weren't talked about and I couldn't find that forum where people were talking about it. You can go to your supervisor to a certain extent, but they can't solve everything for you. In terms of the problems and the, I mean, they're not problems, they're more complexities that I see my students facing. Yeah, it is It is students who are who are trained in other specialities going in to do in, in the School of Computing Science design work with people with dementia uh, and their carers in these really participatory ways and learning whole new ways to communicate. Um, 
And I, I, I have a student at the moment who does have a kind of a family history of, of dementia. Um, and one of his first field sessions in the last few weeks, he just said, you know, I had a bit of a cry. Um, and I remember from my own my own PhD uh, doing this field research, doing a few hours in the care setting, coming back and feeling exhausted, just really, really tired mm-hmm. um, and needing to kind of figure out a whole way of working around that. And I think it kind of ties into to what the others are saying in terms of um, of a, a kind of a broader acknowledgement of mental health and different mm-hmm. needs and creating kind of flexible workplaces. I don't know what the answer is. I do know that we can we can talk a bit more about it. Well, do do you have any uh, sort of advice on that on how people can deal with that kind of exhaustion, which is not just mental, but not not, not just physical, but mental as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would definitely think that we should um, be thinking in terms of sort of body groups or, or sort of debriefing groups or whatever. I mean, very many years ago, part of my research, my PhD, was actually working with um, young onset dementia mm. um, patients. And there, I remember every time I went to the home, the family wanted to bring out all the family photo albums to demonstrate how wonderful my husband was when he was mm. a sportsman, you know, or my wife was when she was a ballroom dancer. And um, that is very emotional draining they they want you to be a witness they you're doing far beyond your little sort of research interview Mm -hmm. and I think um, you know I would take a tip from sort of psychology training psychotherapy training you would always have an an opportunity to sort of debrief and I would very much um, urge students to find someone it may not be your official supervisor but you could sort of buddy up with a a, a group a peer group that you would develop so uh, Geraldine can I ask you um, in terms of uh, so you said students when they enter programs you could you would probably as the welfare officer you would know if they had certain needs or if they had certain disabilities but what about do you have any advice or what are your thoughts on students who during the course of their degree if they develop a certain illness that might not externally be visible and they, for a while, might quietly struggle. And again, I feel like it's that PhD culture of just just keep ploughing on. Mm-hmm. What, what's your advice? How would students, how would you recommend students approach their seniors or their supervisors about things like that when they go wrong? OK, um, it, it, there's a difference between undergrads and, you know, post-grad, post-grad students. Um, the undergrads um, have got ways of reaching out to us that are probably... Uh, yes, they're more numerous, you know, for undergrad students than it is for postgrads. But like I said to you, we've established now a few um, rules, you know, for postgrad mm-hmm. students to come and see us. We've got those focus groups. We've got the uh, coffee mornings. We've uh, um, set up, um, and also we're more visible. The student support team, which I, you know, manage, is is just really, really visible now. So. We, I do a presentation at, uh, during Welcome Week, Freshers' Week. Um, and um, so, you know, they know my face, they know to come to um, um, afterwards. Um, so, yeah, th- there are ways of getting, you know, students to come and talk to us. Yeah, I, th- I think um, it, it, it's difficult because, I mean, having been on both sides of the fence, if you like, both a student and then later now, you know, a senior academic member of staff, it's interesting to think that still in all that time, there is a bit of anxiety about, you know, acknowledging a problem. 
And um, it's partly around, well, these people are going to be writing my reference for me. You know, mm. what are people going to think? And there's still something about that. But we have put a lot of mechanisms in place, certainly at UCL, even in the local departments. There's a whole sort of, you know, spider's web or whatever of, of people that you can go to, networks. Um, but there's something about still a reluctance to do that. I mean, my own work would be, my message, my take-home message would always be to see somebody sooner rather than later. Mm. Because obviously for all problems, an interpersonal problem or a mental health issue or, or even just the fact that your PhD is actually going a bit wrong, you know, and you're falling behind schedule. You know, obviously, the longer you leave that, the worse it gets. I, I, I can't think of a time when someone's buried their head in the sand and guess what? It all magically, you know, got right. better. So, so the message is do seek help. And I think that even though we say that, yeah. that message doesn't still get across. But that's the answer. You yeah. know, there is somebody there who will be able We've to help. We've more students asking uh, postgrad students asking for interruption of studies yes, actually exactly. which is yeah. something you know they never used to do so that yeah. the message is getting Starting through to get yes. out. <laughs> yeah yeah no. you know it can be 3 months 6 months a year you know but they've got that yeah. opportunity to stop yes so stop get the better, clock yeah. you know or sort their problem out and yes. then come back and uh, you know resume their studies yeah. Something that I, I keep seeing from some academics, I think primarily on Twitter now, but which I wish we all did, um, <laughs> was uh, kind of um, celebrating your failures as well as your wins. Mm. So this idea of having a wall of failure. So however many rejected grant submissions you have, rejected papers, mm. um, and mm. kind of highlighting that reality because, I mean, I have... PhD. So we really target one publication venue. Um, and when you don't get in, it almost feels like, oh, my gosh, you know, I really failed. And you haven't really. Um, and it's interesting because by doing that, you're highlighting the fact that you tried to do that thing because yeah. it's so easy to forget <laughs> when you start to get those rejections that mm. you tried so hard. Mm. And in trying itself, you're working and you're getting that much closer to that goal. Mm. You just forget that because you're just so focused on Absolutely. Trying to get it to the next pl place to get it published, right? Yeah, and, and thinking that it's never work wasted. It will go somewhere else. It mm. will go in your thesis. Um, you know, not every venue is right for everything. And yeah, I, I think I think we should have a, a wall filled with all our <laughs> our, our mess ups. I'm all for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you think then? Um, so it's interesting that you say that more and more students are seeking help and are taking interruptions. What do you think? Uh, say the rest of the people in the group for example is there other things we can look out for are there ways we can support each other like do you have any advice to help other people or look out for signs that things might be going wrong for somebody um usually you know the, we look out for signs that um their attitude is changing their behavior the way they look the way they speak um if some uh, of their friends haven't seen them for a while um the Students' Union have got um, great campaigns they run every year as well, you know, look after your mate and stuff like that. So you can come and tell someone within the school, within your school, if you're worried about your friend, you know, if you've not seen them for a while, if they've not been coming to lectures or whatever. Or mm. um, So, yeah, there, there are ways of... Uh, and then um, we just call them in and then if they don't come, you know, sometimes we've got to call security to check on them, you know. It's just, yeah, but there are ways of checking on people you know whether you're an academic uh, student you know or mm. um, a staff member um so in terms of uh 
sort of healthy living, right? That's something I would 100% admit got bad for me when I started my PhD because, mm. you know, things, the, the science almost takes priority and then the amount of work that comes off the back of that starts to take priority. Mm. Um, and then last year I made a conscious effort to, to say to myself, no, I'm going to have a gym schedule. I'm going to do certain things for my own well-being. Can you? What's your experience of that? Do you think that's? Do we need a culture change, or are are people reluctant to kind of do that? Well, I a couple of years ago started um, in our induction week, which I've just been thinking about actually. So we're preparing for induction coming up, and I started to um, think of the sort of model, if you like, of um, coaching with our students and I flag that up in, in induction week and I, I would personally think now especially with, with even our master's students are all following an individualized program let alone our PhD students so really encouraging them to think sort of holistically over the year or over the three years like you know what are my goals and it really is almost like a sort of coaching but part of that uh, uh, just very briefly were um, students that have got into difficulties when I was departmental graduate tutor that was my role to sort of find out what was going on um, one of the things often um, is time management and I, I think that's a big important point when you are um, particularly a PhD student you're trying to plan over three years or more and it's very often students have got into difficulty but importantly I've started to say to students I did start to say to students to actually put into their Gantt chart their timelines things like going to the gym mm. or, you know, going on holiday because I realised that they hadn't factored those in. So you actually have to explicitly say, yes, I'm going to have some time out, regular holidays, breaks, whatever. I'm going to go to the gym, to the cinema. But of course, that's got to feature in your time plan because if it's not there, it's not going to happen. So I started to say you need that visual representation, write it down, have a Gantt chart, have it all in. Do you think, so This, this that's an interesting point because... For example, going on holiday can be like a very guilt-inducing feeling when you're in the middle of a big research project, right? Mm. How can we help that situation? Or do you think we can change supervisors' approach to how students manage their work, perhaps? Oh, gosh. OK, sorry. I, I just wanted to really quickly say that I had a student recently who passed her AP or with flying colours, but the one recommendation we made was go on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I, I feel like... I feel like we should absolutely make it, make that time. Um, oh gosh, I, you don't want to make it, you know, the, that they have to do it, but yeah. maybe we should. You know, they should, they should, they should have to <laughs> take it. Compulsory holiday. Exactly. <laughs> Let's ship you off. <laughs> yeah, but I think sometimes it's also about um, asking the student to think a little bit about themselves. And although it might sound a bit sort of corny, you know, thinking about their sort of strengths and weaknesses, and maybe negotiating a holiday break is a skill that they should be brushing up, that should be a goal that they should be working on. Maybe they need to go to assertiveness training in the extreme, you know. So I think that's as much something to think about, you know, as, as, as anything else. I heard about PhD students who were made a self-take seven days holiday every three months. Mm -hmm. And she just had it, you know, in her schedule, basically, and every three months she would go away, whether, mm. it, you know, to see her parents or to go abroad or to see friends or whatever, but seven days every mm. three months. Mm. 
incorporated into you know the uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to realise that you know that the work is going to stop. You know, and, and when you go out into the real world and get a job, you know, whatever, you know, it's, it's going to be relentless. So you and only you can decide. I'm going to have a break because the world isn't going to stop and tell you. No one's going to knock on your door and say, hello, Caroline, I think, you know, would you like a holiday? You know, that doesn't how it works. So you have to be proactive and, and decide. And a holiday is better than an interruption. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's something I think we should pay attention to, too, um, is that often research and PhD students aren't paid a whole lot. Mm. So we should think about the impact on, you know, how much is a gym membership? How much is... That's you know, right, yeah. so I, I guess that's always again because mm. my PhD was relatively recent. Remembering budgeting for Tesco, mm. um, thinking about about that impact as well. And I, I mean, I'm not totally sure there's anything that we as a as a panel can do about it, but definitely acknowledging that, gosh, they may not be able to take the holiday of their their dreams, but encouraging them to take time from themselves is important. That's definitely a very good point. Mm. Um, so, do you? Uh, to just round off our discussion, what do you have any top tips that you can give our listeners, uh, say, no matter what stage in their career they are, how they can look after themselves a little bit more and, you know, stay, you know, have, he- he- have good health and, you know, keep their minds healthy as well through their research careers? What top tips have you got? I usually tell my students to try a bit of mindfulness. There, there are applications they can download on their phones. So I am... Um, talk about mindfulness, meditation, um, um, attend some workshops that the counselling service offer as well to students, um, sports, there are a lot of societies they can access as well, um, outside activities, um, and then sleep. <laughs> I do t- sleep yeah. seems to be something they forget about quite a lot, you know. Mm. Um, and then varied and balanced diet and um, volunteering as well. I find that a lot of students, especially um, the ones who are depressed or anxious, um, that helps them a lot to do some volunteering um, around the university or outside the university. And also we've got a well-being week, which is a week of all free activities, you know, for students, yoga, squash, you know, badminton, whatever. So that's um, quite popular as well. I suppose I've got probably quite a few things, um, but just off the top of my head, since you've asked, um, thinking about it, I think one thing um, that I would encourage all students to do, I mean, particularly at UCL, the global university, mm-hmm. is, is is just look around your new peer group when you join a programme, or even as a PhD student in the department. You've probably got, you know, students from as, as many countries and cultural backgrounds as there are students sometimes, you know. And I would just give that a little bit of thought, you know, that's a fantastic opportunity to reach out to learn something about India or China where you've perhaps never been and in so doing forge some bonds and some nourishing sort of networks which will you know help everybody I think in different ways and there's all sorts of things you can do like uh, arrange a a meal where everybody brings in you know to a picnic something from their cultural background a dish that they particularly like you know so there's all sorts of quite cheap things that you can do and the other thing that I've started to think about um, again I suppose this is my background as a psychologist interested in brief interventions Um, but that's already when you've got to a sort of clinical level of 
depression, anxiety. But what is really of interest to me is thinking at that preclinical level, what can we do before someone's difficulties become something that they need to go to the psychologist or the counsellor about? And there are all sorts of things online, there's sorts of things that we're trying to develop. So if you think about it, somebody who's, who gets their bit of feedback, as we were saying earlier, starts to doubt themselves, starts to lose conf- you know, self-confidence, you can imagine that that is just the very first step, mm. which could spiral off and, you know, a year down the line, they would need to go to student psychological services. But if you were able to sort of do something then, just at that very early point, where they were just feeling a little bit, you know, yeah, confidence, a little bit knocked, you know, just need a little bit of a boost. There may have been something tiny that you could do. So I'm thinking, trying to think of ingenious ways that we can all kind of reach out and be thinking of these things, the sorts of things you would do with your therapist, cognitive behaviour therapy, mm. informed techniques. But why wait till you're clinically yeah. depressed? You know, why not let's now start thinking about those sorts, just because I got a bit of negative feedback does not mean that I'm hopeless and I'm going to fail everything and not get my award. But that sort of thinking, that catastrophizing or something is, for example, something. So, you know, could we nip that in the bud, you know, for example, and just sort of row back a little bit and get more of a balanced perspective? Uh, For me, uh, two things, I guess, really quickly. Uh, One, again, talking from an interdisciplinary point of view, be on the lookout for training that will help you upskill in areas that you're not super comfortable in. Primarily, if these are, are areas like professional skills, ethics, research methods. If Again, I'm talking about my my computer science students coming in um, that will give you that little bit more comfort. And I suppose be proactive in seeking those out. There are some terrible PG skills <laughs> modules out there, but they're also really good ones to help you to broaden your, your skill set, your horizon. And again, just absolutely to echo what Caroline said, be be looking at that network. Try to ne- try to dig in deep to that network, whether it's kind of globally or or locally. And I guess something I've seen some students trip up in, which I think is hard to extricate yourself from sometimes, is uh, there's a kind of a point between venting and uh, this kind of sense of negativity, and and there's a point where that can spill over. Mm-hmm. So I think to to kind of to ensure that you're having positive activities and interactions with that network as well as those kind of venting Mm. (laughs) moments. Those would be the two things I think I'd look out for. Brilliant. So what I've learned from this discussion today is (laughs) make lots of friends, uh, vent, (laughs) went away, get lots of sleep, eat well, (laughs) mindfulness. This is such good advice for me that I Mm. need to write down and take home with me. Mm. So it's been really great uh, talking to all of you today, but it's time to end today's recording. I'd really like to thank our panellists, Geraldine, Kelly and Caroline. You can visit our website to look at the profiles of all our panellists and please do post your questions in our comments section or drop us a line on Twitter using hashtag ECRDementia. We also suggest you take a look at the essential tools part of our website where we have a section on health and well-being. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast through SoundCloud and iTunes and tell all your friends and colleagues. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.